Spiritual Guide to Politics. I am Liz Philippos, and I'm here to offer an expanded perspective into this moment in our collective political lives so that we come to a deeper awareness of our capacity to transform and transcend the present paradigm as agents of transformation. Each week, I talk with creative leaders about their spiritual understanding of the current political moment the possibilities for the well-being of our planetary lives and the life of the planet itself. They inspire us to know that the personal is political and the political is spiritual. There are tremendous possibilities for transformation when we really come to know this. I'm so happy to have with us today Claire Hartley. Claire is a British-born yoga teacher who's known for bringing the deeper layers of yoga and yoga philosophy to her classes, workshops, and trainings. Practitioners leave with the experience of their authentic, joyful self, and she is a joyful self. Her journey began when she was fortunate to stumble into the beginning of the Western yoga revolution in New York City in the early 1990s. She moved to Los Angeles in 2001, and in 2006, she opened Rising Lotus Yoga with Daniel Stewart, and this is a busy and thriving studio today. She created the popular Rising Lotus Teacher Training Program, and she trains students to bring intelligent alignment and sequencing to classes, as well as the real meaning of yoga practice with Dharma talks, self-reflection, and a commitment to staying curious on the path of becoming a teacher of yoga, which she says is ultimately becoming a teacher of the heart. Claire is also a longtime feminist with a keen interest in politics. After the last election, the yoga studio became a fundraiser and a consciousness raiser about the political process, and Claire hosted a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood and other services for women. Um, and uh, really, you know, brought that conversation to the yoga studio in a way that often yoga teachers are reluctant to do. And I have to say that um, a number of people that were at the studio weren't that happy about it, that feel that yoga and politics are should be separate matters. I don't come to the yoga studio to hear about politics. But the fact is, Claire is such a brilliant teacher that she connects politics to yoga and makes the point that what we're doing on the mat has to have some meaning off of the mat. And this is what we're talking about today. Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Liz. So happy to be here. As a feminist student of the Yoga Sutras and an awakened being on the planet, you have much to offer from the fruits of your practice, so I'm so glad you're here. Your Dharma talks and yoga classes have inspired me for a few years, and I love the way that you weave spirituality with our everyday lived experience. Could you talk a bit about yoga on the mat and yoga off the mat? 
Yes, it's a it's a big subject, certainly in the yoga community, of sort of redefining, back to redefining and what yoga is. As you know, the yoga practice is a big business here in the United States. You know, it's had a, boo- a huge boom over the past 10, 15, maybe 20 years. And because of that, the practice looks like from the outside a purely physical practice. You know, as you study deeper into it, you begin to understand that the physical is just a doorway, right? If you're really practicing and studying yoga, the physical thing is a doorway into finding out truly who you are and how authentic you are and are you living authentically. So while a yoga posture might look really challenging, the most challenging thing is to come face-to-face with actually yourself as a human being, right, for the first time for a lot of us. And so... For me and what I do in the studio and the teaching, that physical practice, it's sort of like a tricky way, sort of a trickster way of bringing people a little closer to themselves. Like it's much easier to say, come and stretch your back out rather than come sit and meditate and experience who you are for an hour, an hour and a half. Most people are going to run away from that. Right? So I think there are these beautiful negatives and positives to how people are viewing yoga. There's a lot of backlash for teachers and students who have been studying for a long time and saying the commercialization, the way that it's showing up on Instagram, is very negative. And yet at the same time, I think it's okay that people don't necessarily understand immediately what they're getting themselves into. We often stumble upon things. And then if we're patient and there's enough interest and curiosity, the layers of what it's penetrating with inside your body and your mind start to show up. Because after all, it's experiential. It's something that gives you the experience of being with yourself. Because as we know, you and I can sit here and talk about what it is to be a spiritual being or what spirituality is. But does that really touch upon what what it is? No, we we have to experience it with all things. And then otherwise it doesn't leave an an impression on the mind. It doesn't leave an impression on the body. So I'm always looking for ways to find the quickest way to leave an impression of what yoga really is. So it's an embodiment that you're talking about. It's an embodiment. It's it's an action, really. I mean, yoga is a a word that you could use to describe of how do you yoke these pieces of yourself together, right? The yoga word comes from the the root of yoke. So what are you yoking? So before you can even really address that, I think as we have to understand that we feel like many separate things in the world, right? We have identities mother and daughter and wife and teacher and, you know, L.A. person and British person. And there are all these sort of layers. And within that, there are stories, responsibilities that come with that. And so we end up over a lifetime, if we're just these fragments of stories, of perceptions of who we think we are, and that's all there is, what we're seeing is what we're seeing right now is a society that's exhausted It's exhausted of itself. We have so much choice. This is all good and bad, right? It's not one thing. There's so much choice. We're connected so amazingly through all our devices. And yet, what are we choosing? So we're often choosing um, to fill ourselves up with more story 
and then we come to the end of the day and we're like who who am I who who wrote that story who thought that thought why am I feeling so disconnected and so tired so the yoga then becomes first an observation through the practice of going okay so if I'm trying to bring something together what is it that I'm bringing together this is why we use the physical postures first, is the body has a great story to tell and a great teaching. I feel my finger and I feel my toe and I feel my thigh and I feel my jaw and it's tight or it's loose. And through that, it trains the mind through all these different parts of ourselves to understand that there are lots of different things going on at the same time. There's tightness, there's looseness, there's, there's a softness, there's a hardness, there's a grief, there's a joy, and we hold as beings all of this at the same time. When we spread our awareness through the body, we understand that the, the body is telling a story, and we're not just one thing. And I think we open up to a perception of ourselves then, oh, I'm not just one thing. And actually, throughout a whole day, I'm feeling grief and joy and sadness and anger and and we begin to let ourselves off the hook a little bit, right? We're so hard on ourselves. Like, I should be feeling one way. This pressure of being happy, <laughs> happy, happy, happy all the time. And, and through the practice, which is an experience of this, is that we begin to and say, well, sometimes it's just difficult. And what do I do with the difficulty? I mean, you know, as I often do in class, I said, when you find a difficult moment, are you blaming yourself this is too difficult, I cannot move through this? Or are you looking at me and saying, why is she putting me through this difficulty, right? All these stories and thoughts go through our head at once. And so it becomes a little Petri dish of then going, oh, look at, look at what I do. I punish myself or I punish others. And so it, it's, the really, it's, the beginning to, it's the beginning of consciousness rising, right? That's consciousness rising. What's unconscious starts to come to the surface. And when you can make something that's unconscious rise to the surface, it's really exciting and, and scary because then you'll say, well, what else is driving me that's unconscious? So yoga can be called the act of making you know, that which is unconscious rise to the surface, consciousness rising, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The lotus moving out of the mud. So it's an action and an art and a philosophy. You've been talking a lot about the heart and what it means to live from the heart. Can you talk a bit about how yoga brings us there? There is a, uh, a translation of the Yoga Sutras, which is the main text that I think that most of us in the Western world use as a pathway to yoga. So the Yoga Sutras were written down probably 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And so there's been many translations of the Yoga Sutras since then. And actually, I believe... Nearly all of them were written by men, which is great, which is fine. That's the lineage of yoga. That's how they've come up. I recently uh, got a copy of, her name is Nishila Joy Devi, a yoga teacher who I believe was in the Paramanda Yogananda system for a while. There is the, the second yoga sutra. If you get this sutra, sutra means thread or, or little terse teaching, then it's said that you don't have to read the rest. There's 196 of these sutras. It's normally translated, and all the translations pretty much basically say that yoga is the holding or the ceasing of the ups and downs of the mind's consciousness, right? the ceasing, the holding, the restraint. 
And, you know, I've worked with this for a long time, and it goes, it certainly goes along with meditation. You know, we're watching the mind. Just that word restraint of the mind. Nichola Devi has a translation that says, yoga is the uniting. Yoga is the uniting of the consciousness to the heart. It's what I've been teaching, but she's put words to the sutra that I love and sort of brought all this together. So we think about where is the consciousness normally? Where is our consciousness? It's, obviously, it's always outward. You know, as I'm sitting here with you, I'm, you know, observing the room and some, sometimes the sound, sometimes not. But the consciousness is also perhaps in my memories, my memories of the book or what I'm going to do afterwards. There's a part of me that's sort of jumping back and forward and then sometimes here. And so that consciousness of the heart, yoga is the uniting, I think the reuniting of the consciousness of the heart, because I think we come in this way as babies, right? Our sense of who we are and where we are first is filtered through the heart, where there is no sense of separation in a way that there's the, there's the world, and I'm operating through the world through this sense of compassion and empathy and connectedness. So the heart gives us the guide for the connectedness. And then we lose that along the way. The yoga can be a practice, if you choose it, to come back and reconnect your perception of all things. First, filter your perception through your heart. And that's the beginning of the yoga journey often is, is that you sit on your mat and you end up crying a lot. Right? A lot of people come in when they very first start the practice and like, I don't understand. Why am I crying so much? Because perhaps for the first time, you are bringing your perception and filtering your perception through the heart, and the tears are often grief that you forgot yourself. You forgot where you were for a long time, could be decades, right? So you're, it's a coming back home, and you know when you come back home to a place you haven't been for a long time, we cry. We cry with grief and joy that we forgot. That's often the first journey into a practice. The, the practice seems brand new, and yet it seems ancient. Right? It, it reunites ourselves. And so that's, to me, what the whole purpose of the practice is. And then when you re reunite yourself, how, how long can you stay there with all of your interactions? Sometimes it's just for that brief moment. Sometimes you get out in the parking lot and you start... <laughs> You start swearing at the person who you've come in front and start complaining about how awful the parking lot is, right? So, But if you have a consistent practice, then it begins to change. You begin to sort of laugh at your reaction that every time you get into that parking lot, you know, you feel yourself um, rise up in some way, right? You start to have a more compassionate sense of yourself and your own annoyances and all the times that you get hooked, right? There's a witness consciousness to that, right? So you can witness the ego getting hooked and you can still stay connected to the heart even while the ego is getting hooked. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Claire Hartley talking about yoga. So Claire, can you talk a bit about the last election? What happened? Uh, I think we're all still sorting that out. As you can tell, I'm, I'm British. I wasn't born here. I think in some ways I have a unique perspective as a lot of people who were not born here because I didn't grow up in this culture. There wasn't necessarily an expectation of what this country was to offer me 
in a way. I think there's a story about this country as you were born here. And my I, my husband's from New Jersey, and we've talked about this a lot. This country did a big branding after the Second World War, and the great marketing campaign was, right, the American dream. And everybody knows that word, right, the American dream, and what that is. That's been in the, obviously, the consciousness for a long time, but I think certainly in the generation that we're on post-World War II, that took on a particular look and feel and what was to be expected. And so I didn't grow up with that, but I've noticed you know, my husband's parents and their generation of what that means to them. And so I think what happened in the last election is really tied up with that perception of what the American dream means. We're talking about perception in yoga and how we filter through. So if a practice, a spiritual practice to me, means that you just, you really see, you really perceive this moment rather than filter it through all of the stories that are given to you and ones that you also make up in your own head to survive a particular situation. So you keep clearing those out and clearing clearing those out. That's a lot of work, and it's a dedicated path. None of us are enlightened that I know. We're all just working with this over and over again. But in the last election, I think that this thing of the American dream to me seems like it has to reinvent itself. What is the new American dream? What happened in the last election is that a lot of the people that have been suffering, which I realize now I'm reframing what happened over and over again, trying to understand what's happening with this country at this moment, bringing more compassion more compassion to what we're seeing is that the American dream no longer exists in the same way, and yet... There is a lot of people promising a lot of people that it still exists in the same way. So there's a trapped story that's going on, and we cannot create a new story until we all see that the old one doesn't exist anymore. And can we all consciously agree that it's not there, that the promise of the white American male having a secure job and passing that on to the son and the next son and the family, it's not there. And then somebody came along and lied and said, it is, and I can give it you back. We're still trapped in that lie. I mean, that's, I think the fundamental lie is, and it's always about how we're telling ourselves stories. And so the truth of the story is that that is not there. It's not coming back. There's layers of waking up that needs to happen. I'm trying not to get caught so much in the day-to-day. In yoga, that's getting hooked The heat of every single piece of news information that comes up drains us of our energy. In spiritual terms, there's this term of the Ajna Chakra, right, third eye. When we're sitting more mindfully, we can open up our perspective to the biggest space of actually what's happening. And I think the conversation needs to get also into the bigger space. We're blaming and pointing the finger at each other. And meanwhile, we're just creating more and more suffering We have to pull back and say, what's the bigger picture here? What are we missing? What do we all have in common? Because we have a hell of a lot more in common than we have that's separating us. But we're focusing on what's separating us, and we're allowing that to happen. And there are powers to be that want us to do that because it serves their agenda. We're only focusing on what's separating us and continuing that conversation 
then we're just adding to the suffering that's already there. I think this is about a bigger story and having conversations around that rather than saying you're wrong. Focusing on that person in the White House is actually the worst thing to do. Let's focus on each other instead of that thing over there. It's keeping us trapped. What we see as the outcome of elections is the outcome of a prevailing consciousness. The outcome is the symptom or the clue of a larger consciousness with which we're working. If we were to look at consciousness as the place of our political work, then it's right here in the midst of me. Where does narrow self-interest guide me rather than a sense of compassion? Where am I projecting onto someone else a problem that is actually mine to resolve? Well, I think the surprise was that I didn't understand how deep the shadow was. A lot of us sat back and thought, he's telling lies. Everybody can see he's lying, right? We were wrong to sit back and think that shadow would not rise up and actually take control of the conversation. And it has. It's very dark and it's very murky right now. And yet the shadow is there. My hope is Trump will actually be the best thing that ever happened to this country. I think there's an opportunity for that to happen. All the shadow is rising. We wouldn't have the Me Too conversation if last year hadn't happened. We're willing, we're in the muck, we're in the mud. And the only way that we can rise up out of it is now to look at it. There's a deep tipping point that we're at and how many of us are willing to actually look at that shadow and get involved in it and bring it to light, even though it's messy and uncomfortable. As you said, the first work is to address your own shadow, parts of your suffering that haven't been unaddressed and yet you point it out in everybody else. We cannot look at one side and say, look what they're doing. And it's not just a self-interested practice, but it is an awareness that we are all connected in consciousness. Mm. So the question is, what are we going to do with this opportunity? As you know, through spiritual practice, it is always at the darkest moment. When you're on the floor, the way that you come out of it, rather than just do a quick fix, a band-aid on it, can actually lead to immense great opportunity. But again and again, it's the personal work that has to happen. I once heard someone say that the shadow is darkest when the sun is brightest. And so we're at high noon. <laughs> yes, burning up. We're burning up, Liz. It's so true. So let me ask you, after the last election, you got activated and brought a lot of events to the studio. Can you talk a bit about the response to that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a little bit. And, and, you know, I try and be um, super conscious. I, I never want to alienate anybody. So um, and so it's, it's not even... I, I'm taking sides. There's nothing about what I do, what it wants to look like. I'm, I'm stepping in and taking a side. It's about a value. It's about, for instance, we um, did a Planned Parenthood fundraiser because I believe the value of Planned Parenthood is should be at the top of the list for everybody's priority who is interested in women's health and that um, we should be all responsible for young women's health and all the services they provide are pretty amazing in this country, in a country that doesn't have a socialized medicine, right, and universal health care. So I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to support that. And then when I saw that their funding was in jeopardy, and it has been, you know, for some time on and off. So I've done a few um, fundraisers for those. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous. That might be termed political, and it shouldn't be, right? That's not a political act, that is an act of, um, in some ways, self-interest and compassion. I have used their services before. 
I have a daughter. I, I want a society that she feels comfortable going to a place, whether she has a lot of money or not, and, and receiving care. Right? They do a, a lot of stuff. So we sold T-shirts and we had a fundraiser. And then I have become quite friendly with Katie Hill, who is a young woman who is running for California District 25, the congressional seat there. There's an election this year. And um, she's been the director of PATH, which is the largest homeless organization in Los Angeles. So she's, had a, she's young and she's had a life of service already at this young age. And like many women in the last election, again, there's the shadow and addressing the shadow. There's this amazing movement that's come up with all these women who are running for office because women are not fairly represented, as you know, in our country in seats. And so there's enormous response that we're talking about. And actually, it's fun because she's um, one of the pictures on the cover of Time magazine this week and then next week, New York magazine. And I brought her in for a conversation just to introduce her to people because it's a district just above the studio and for her to talk about why she's running. Because I want to inspire. I want people to come in and inspire each other that you can step into the arena of the conversation in any way. Now, some people are going to choose to run for some sort of office that's not available to everybody. But what I've noticed is, and even for, even for myself, and this is another positive act, aspect of what's happened this year, is that the political process, for me, always felt like over there. You were you did that over there. That was your, your, your realm. And I sort of did my realm over here. And it felt very separate from my life in a lot of ways. Like, and that was a, you know, sort of a job that you took up and you were a particular type of person. But I feel like now what's so exciting is that these lines have um, melded together and so many people I know have gotten involved politically that were not before, um, whether it's in the, you know, the union. The, this is L.A., so there was a lot of SAG after members that have run for that office. And then there are smaller offices around that I have friends, women, who have put themselves in and are starting to run for office that is so empowering, right? That's a voice on all levels. Like run for your school board if you have time. Run run for anything. Have some say in the conversation. And that's also one of the really positive changes that's come this year and that I think will continue to grow. I mean, look, in one year, the amount of women, women that have chosen to run for office, it's it would never have happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's exciting. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to continue to get into the conversation about that. Do you have a community? And there are people that are interested in speaking to people within the community, outside of the community, because what happens in this city is it affects all of us, whether um, you're a Republican or Democrat. You want a person with integrity and decency and a person who has some some work around who they are in the world. And I think we're all getting much better at spotting that, paying more attention to that. I think that's hopefully what comes out of what happened this past year. It really has been remarkable to watch the surge of women into leadership roles and the number of women that are speaking out, uh, making public the concerns that they have and the values that concern women, but, you know, ultimately, uh, they concern us all because they are talking about compassion, health, education, children, families, safety, caring communities. And so we're waking up again at a, at a deeper place than we were before. 
I just see so much more happening uh, with you at the studio, with the community. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think there is a way to... Um, I, I told somebody I was I was coming on to talk about spirituality and politics. Actually, it was my mother. And she said, well, those two things don't go together. right? And I said, well, actually, I think that they do and they should. Why should they be separate? And we used to have tribes and elders that had... Not really different than religious practices, but practices of embodiment that also are then elevated to states of leadership. And we've gotten so far away from that. Um, conversations about our values as human beings that has nothing to do with your re religious affiliation, just basic human values that should come first, and then that leads into leadership, right? And, and, And they have become very separate, right? And we've used religion as a way to say, no, I'm doing that. And it's very different. Religion doesn't necessarily, as we can see, really mean anything. Um, you can be religious and not be embodied in your yourself, and you can be religious and be very embodied, right? So using the term of the I have a religion doesn't necessarily mean that you're following a path, path of awakening, Um, so why don't we have leaders that are more interested in following that path of awakening? So we're coming to the end of our time, and I just really want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing your insights and um, having this conversation with us. It's been really wonderful, fruitful. Thank you so much for joining me today. You've been listening to Claire Hartley, owner of Rising Lotus Studio and a yoga teacher there. This is a spiritual guide to politics. And my name is Liz Philippos, reminding you that the personal is political and the political is spiritual. There are tremendous possibilities for transformation when we really come to know this. Uh -huh.